Good morning. I'm glad you could join us this morning for Blue Ridge, um, Blue Ridge Church. Sorry about that. Um, I am coming to you from the um, privacy of my own home this morning in the comfort of my sofa um, because I'm experiencing some um, health issues, some back problems, and so I appreciate your patience with that, but I'm really glad you could join us. Um, we're going to do what we're able to do at least um, virtually this morning, and so in light of that, let's begin with the psalm for the day which is Psalm 74. Psalm 74 says this, O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to its perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees, and all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. There is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and streams and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant. For the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Do not let the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which, which goes up continually. God bless the reading of his word. Um, I'm glad you're able to be with us this morning again. Um, as we share some uh, time to um, bring our hearts before the Lord in prayer, I uh, want to remember a few things uh, with you and encourage you to consider those needs that might be on your heart. Um, remember um, uh, one of our own this morning, Opal Grant. Um, she um, has recently recovered from sickness with COVID and now has the flu and so is unfortunately uh, uh, quarantined right now and recovering. Um, Several of you have reached out to offer help and uh, really appreciate that. One of the things I love about Blue Ridge is that um, often um, by the time that I find out there is a need, several of you have reached out to the person already and said, what can we do to help? Or maybe call me and say, okay, so-and-so is sick, but we've already made arrangements for food and transportation and all the things that are needed. So I uh, really appreciate that about you guys. I remember Opal, though, as she's recovering. Um, we have several members of the Blue Ridge uh, family and uh, friends of Blue Ridge who are recovering from COVID right now, so certainly remember them. 
Um, a neighbor of mine, Lisa Sprouse, um, uh, dear sweet friend, uh, my whole life, um, is having a hard time. Um, she is uh, hospitalized with some health problems this morning, and um, her family, I know, would covet your prayers. Um, if you would remember her, her and her husband Brian and her son Emery this morning and their family. Um, Barbara Mann, um, as she um, uh, figures out how to uh, continue living without um, her dear mate. Uh, that's a hard thing for anyone. I've watched family members go through that, and it's a special kind of um, experience that you just really, I don't think, can understand until you've been there. So certainly remember Miss Barbara and uh, John and Jen and the kids um, as uh, they uh, uh, live these days without Alvin and uh, as they uh, hopefully, uh, by God's grace, are able to more and more celebrate the good things about the time they've had with him and uh, there's less uh, mourning and sense of loss by God's grace. Um, I'd appreciate your prayers for me. Um, the sighting nerve problem that I've had um, really since childhood, but it's been particularly bad the last 10 years or so, uh, has just reached um, about the worst point that I've ever been with it, honestly. Pain is under control right now, um, thanks to um, help from uh, doctors, but uh, we've got to find some kind of solution for my walking because the um, sciatic nerve, um, if you're familiar with it, it's your body's biggest nerve, and it kind of innervates almost everything from the waist down in terms of you know, your legs, your walking, your posture, your standing, your balance, that kind of thing, all very dependent on the work of the sciatic nerve. And when something goes wrong there, um, the problem that I have right now is that sometimes I can stand up and be fine. Sometimes I stand up and my legs turn to rubber and I just fall to the floor. And obviously falling a lot is not good for anybody. Um, one of those falls messed up my upper spine and now my um, arms and my hands are numb. And so I'm finding it very difficult to... Uh, do just some basic things that I'm used to doing and um, just to take a moment to talk about that, I will say um, I've experienced, I've had chronic pain issues for many years anyway, but I think one of the things that God has really taught me is that we can um, reach a point where we can give thanks even for our trials because there are so many things that I can understand having gone through this that I wouldn't have otherwise, ways that I can be able to sympathize with people who have chronic pain and who have similar kinds of um, conditions. There are also a lot of things about patience and humility and about um, how God has made us to be interdependent and how we have to sometimes humble ourselves and rely on the kindness of people who love us and are willing to come to our aid and uh, I'm thankful for all those lessons. Um, none of us would choose to learn those in a difficult and painful way, obviously. But nonetheless, I'm very thankful that the Lord has blessed me with that opportunity. Um, and I can look back over the course of my life and say he's brought me through some hard things. But there's not a one of them that he hasn't taught me a tremendous amount through. There's not a one of them that hasn't contributed to my sanctification and his glory, ultimately. And so my prayer is just that that would continue, that that would be the case for all of us as we uh, deal with the different struggles that life brings, the hardships and the grief and uh, the physical pain sometimes that life brings, that uh, God would be glorified and that we'd be built up into the image of Christ. Um, certainly uh, heavy on my heart, I think probably for all of us uh, this morning, the people of Ukraine and of Russia, um, 
situation that looks uh, pretty dire right now. Um, just pray for um, God's grace for the people who are involved there, um, for God's protection for innocent people who are in the path of um, what may turn out to be a very, um, very bloody conflict. I hope not, but certainly there's potential for that, it seems. And I uh, just pray for um, ongoing efforts at peace and that uh, the Lord would intervene there. And in any case, that God's will would be done and that God would be glorified in whatever happens. Um, remember, believers around the world who um, are not able to worship freely, those who are jailed or those who have to worship in silence and um, in hiding because it's not safe to be able to express their faith in Christ. Uh, remember those who sacrifice to be able to bring the gospel to others. Certainly, um, there are many across the world who don't enjoy the freedoms that we have in the United States to be able to worship the Lord and to be able to celebrate um, the fellowship of the saints and to draw encouragement from that. And so we just uh, pray that God would provide his grace in special ways for those who can't gather with the church. Um, pray for the church across the world. Um, our sister churches across McDowell County and the state and the nation and the world, that um, the gospel would uh, ring true and loud and clear in the midst of darkness and that people would be drawn to the Lord and that he would be glorified as he saves um, all of his people. And I'm sure you bring your own burdens this morning. I'm sure you have things that are concerns um, within your family and your sphere of friends. And so I um, just encourage you to lay those down before the Lord. Um, I'm going to take a few moments of silent prayer, and I encourage you to do the same. And then I'll um, sort of um, pray for us all together. So let's take a few moments to just retreat from the world and bring our hearts before the Lord. Father, your grace is mighty. It is mightier than any force in this universe. You have, by your grace, conquered the ultimate foe, which is death. You have, by your grace, taken sin-stained people who could never on their own stand righteous before you and made us into the righteous image of Christ so that we could be redeemed and that we could be yours and that we could uh, be able to dwell with you eternally. God, we call on that grace and that mercy this morning to bless those who are in need, those who suffer, those who mourn, those who are sick, those who are at risk, those who seek to glorify you in spite of sometimes staggering odds, God. Lord, we call upon you as the sovereign master of the universe the creator and the sustainer of all that is, Lord, to um, sovereignly do your will in each of these circumstances, to teach us to desire your will above all things, and, Lord, to glorify yourself as you are due. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, um, we are in Leviticus again, and we're in the third chapter. I hope this um, is a productive study for you. Um, Leviticus is one of those books that reminds me of why we do what we do at Blue Ridge, which is we teach in a way that's expository, moving through whole books of scripture typically, um, 
so that we uh, cover everything in Scripture over time. One of the things about that that we've always treasured is that not only does it give us a balance of teaching and help people to really know their Bibles well and to understand Scripture in context of other Scripture, but it also forces us to cover sometimes the passages that honestly just don't preach easily, those that we might not automatically go to. Leviticus is one of those that seems to be just kind of a whole list of laws and rules, and so you don't hear an awful lot of sermons from Leviticus in my experience. But I think it's very valuable because obviously it is God's word, it's God's revelation of himself and his heart for his people, and it's very important to us even though it talks about a uh, kind of um, ceremonial law, a kind of uh, ritual sacrifice that's not part of our experience with God now, that was a preview of what we have gained in Christ. And so it's really critical that we understand these things, I think. Today in Leviticus 3, we're talking about what, um, in most translations, a lot of translations at least, is called the fellowship offering. Um, ESV, which we're reading from today, and um, the Reform, uh, Revised Standard Version, English Standard Version or Revised Standard Version, both use the term peace offering. Um, and we'll talk in a moment about why that may be a more appropriate translation. But um, at any rate, this is what we call the peace or the fellowship offering. It's being described here in Leviticus 3, and I'm just going to read through the chapter for us, and then we'll sort of peel back some layers and try to understand this together. So um, let's look at Leviticus 3. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails, and all the food that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Verse 5, Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering is for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord as an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, he shall offer it before the Lord, lay his hand on the head of his offering, and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's son shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails. And the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord, and lay his hand on its head, and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails, and all the fat that's on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all of your dwelling places, that you neither eat fat nor blood. Um, so, the as I said, the Hebrew term here, sometimes gets translated as fellowship offering, but I really like the term peace offering that's used in ESV better. Um, the term for this offering is 
um, shalamim, which is derived from the Hebrew word, word shalem, which is um, the word we understand like in the Hebrew greeting shalom um, as meaning peace, but it also has to do with more than just peace as far as not being at war with somebody. It really encompasses this idea of health and wholeness and welfare, um, even prosperity to a certain extent, at least a spiritual kind of prosperity. Um, and so that's why that's a greeting within Hebrew culture. Um, we have in North Carolina, we have the city of Salem. Salem is derived from that same root, it means peace. Um, and so this offering apparently symbolizes peace with God because the worshipers join in the meal. And that's important. It's different than a burnt offering where basically the entire sacrifice is incinerated on the altar. It's a different kind of approach. And it includes the worshipers in the meal together with the priests and with God. So the process goes like this. The offering is brought to the priest, whether it's a lamb or a kid or whatever. The first thing that happens is that the sacrifice is brought before the tent of meeting, the tabernacle where the Lord is worshipped, where sacrifices are performed, where offerings are made. And the one who is offering the sacrifice lays his hand on the head of the animal. That's a symbolic transfer of his guilt and the guilt of his family to that animal, that idea of a scapegoat who um, bears the sins of the people before the Lord. And so that's kind of what that is. And, and think about that just for a minute in a kind of a, a, um, of a um, sensory kind of way, what that's like, because you've got your live animal. And this is, you know, think about a kid goat that you've seen born and, you know, you've probably had to help it, you know, get started nursing, clean it up and everything. And you've watched that animal grow up from a little bitty baby. And even the hardest, most toughened farmer, um, can't help but smile at the sight of a little kid frolicking around in the barnyard. They're just beautiful. Um, we have this word in English, capricious, um, which means like a kid goat. And so it's this idea of a kid goat running and kicking up its heels and dancing around just out of sheer joy. And that's really what you know you see when you see an animal like that born. And then the person who has had this animal born to him has been blessed with this by the Lord who's fed this animal and watched it grow up and singled it out as being a, an appropriate sacrifice, as being a blemishless, uh, perfect offering that he can bring to the Lord. He then brings it before the tent of meeting and he puts his hand on the animal's head. Now, you know, sometimes in, in modern day culture, we ranch animals in a kind of way where, you know, there are thousands of head of whatever livestock and it's very impersonal, all that kind of thing. In these days, these were, even though they settled sometimes in, in settlements for a time, these were a nomadic kind of people. And these animals moved along with them, and they were kind of part of their families almost. They were part of their livelihood in every way. They were very dependent, and there was kind of this constant sense of their dependence on the animals for their own health and well-being. And so to touch that animal and make physical contact with that animal, which I imagine would have probably had a name, you know, um, even when we, uh, years ago when I raised uh, uh, dairy goats and have just slews of kids, you know, and we put numbered tags around their necks to be able to keep up with them for the purpose of medical records and those things. But my buddy who was in the, the goat farming experience with me, his kids gave names to every single one of them. And so you'd have Blackie and Whitey and Spot and whatever. 
And um, I imagine that the guy who brought his sacrifice and laid his hand on his head and made that physical connection for the last time probably thought, you know, there's old spot. There's good old spot. Who I've raised from a kid who has been given by the Lord to serve as a sacrifice, born to be a sacrifice, right? Because born without blemish, without spot, given by the Lord to be the sacrifice. You see the parallels here with Christ? You see how the God's gift of an animal that could be an appropriate sacrifice perfectly mirrors what was coming in Christ and how Christ perfected this and fulfilled this, not replaced it, not did away with it, but brought it to fruition in a way that it never could fully be um, under the old covenants. And so the person bringing the sacrifice placed his hand on the animal's head, and there was this acknowledgement of this transfer symbolically of his guilt and the guilt of his family to that animal. And then the priest kills the animal and flays it, and the blood and the entrails are dealt with a lot like the burnt offering. Um, but the fat and the kidneys and that long lobe of the liver that's removed along with the kidneys, that's the only part that's burned on the altar. That part goes on the wood on the altar and gets burned for a fragrance to the Lord, a pleasing aroma to the Lord, it says. Um, the priest gets a portion then out of what's left. The right breast and the right thigh go to the sons of Levi, that is the temple priests. And so that's for their support and would have been a major source of protein and, and food for them. And then the balance of that, everything besides the entrails and the right breast and right thigh, the rest of that animal goes back to the worshiper for him and his family to be able to eat. And so it was kind of a, a celebratory feast that happened when you had this large amount of meat available. That's probably something they didn't get to enjoy really frequently. Um, we would think that, you know, likely based on their circumstances, um, it was probably pretty common that people might have eaten a whole lot more um, small game birds, fish, um, those kinds of things, but probably not a great deal of uh, mammal type meat, you know, it just wasn't something that was readily available to people that they had the luxury of being able to kill and eat an animal. And so this was a time of celebration. It was a time of rejoicing. Um, and if you look across scripture, a shared meal is an emblem of fellowship again and again and again. You know, what does Christ say we will celebrate together with? They have the marriage supper of the lamb. You know, what was Jesus' first revelation of his divinity? It was coming to a great feast and performing a miracle for everyone to be able to see. We see that food, I mean, you know, I love food. You know, clearly you guys know me. I love to cook. I love to eat. I love to feed other people. It's just, it's a passion of mine. And I really take to heart the, the injunction from Proverbs to taste and see that the Lord is good. I believe that God gave us our senses to be able to perceive how good he is. Um, right now, this morning, this, this coffee is tasting pretty good. And I can re be reminded of God's grace and God's goodness as I sip it. Um, but the shared meal is always an emblem of fellowship. It's always an emblem of coming together, of being together with God's people. It's always kind of a preview, I think, of that marriage supper of the Lamb, of that time when all of God's redeemed will sit down together and celebrate being in his presence. And so here in this um, peace offering, we have a portion that's offered to God, a portion that goes to those who minister in the temple, and 
a large portion that goes back to the worshiper and his family to be able to celebrate. These kinds of um, peace offerings or fellowship offerings could be voluntary, kind of as a special offering of thanks to God, um, or it might be a free will kind of offering or given as a, a result of a vow, those kinds of things. Apparently, according to what we read over in chapter 7 of Leviticus, that's the case. It could kind of come for a number of different reasons. And I want to really encourage you in your time this afternoon when you have a few moments, read Leviticus 7 together with Leviticus 3 because the two really um, intertwine. They're really important to understanding each other. And because we will be covering Leviticus 7, I didn't dip too much into that today, but just for the sake of saying that, it does give you some more detail and some more um, understanding of what's being commanded here in Leviticus 3. Um, this was the kind of an offering that was given at a special celebration. It would have been given at a feast day, a holy day, when a lot of people would come together and join in these kinds of sacred meals. So there would be a whole line of people waiting to offer their sacrifices before the Lord at the, the tent of meeting. And there would have been a huge field full of people sitting around enjoying the meat that they were cooking over fire, probably barbecuing goat or lamb or whatever, and enjoying that with their families. And so, again, just that emphasis, that visual um, reinforcement of that fellowship. And it was a sense of not just fellowship with brothers and sisters in the Lord, but with the Lord himself and with the Lord's priests. Uh, if a person were too poor to bring um, any kind of a fellowship offering, we're told over in chapter 17 that he would probably be given a share of the offering um, from other families. So it was something that, you know, again, much like we see in, um, in the commands in Corinthians about um, a communion, you know, that we, we wait for one another, that if anyone's hungry, that he should be fed um, separately from that communion meal, those kinds of things. We certainly have lots of injunctions about feeding one another and making sure that uh, people are provided for out of the blessings the Lord's given us. And so that, again, is reflected here as people who didn't have an offering to bring would be able to share in the bounty of someone else's sacrifice. One of the key things that we're told is no blood is to be eaten. Blood and fat are not to be eaten, and the fat belongs to the Lord. The fat was a special part of the animal that was offered to God, and so it was sacred. Honestly, if you know anything about cooking, there is a mantra that we have in, in cooking that says fat is flavor, and it's so true. Um, if you've ever gone on a low-fat diet, you will know. It's hard to wring flavor out of low-fat meats and things. You have to use a lot of spices and a lot of seasonings and a lot of tricks because when you take the fat out of something, you just don't have the same flavor. And if you've ever eaten a super lean um, piece of beef, it tastes beefy, but it's not in the same way that a really nice, well-marbled ribeye does, for instance. Um, there's a thing about that. Now, we could also look at this, like a lot of um, the things that relate to diet and uh, the commands that God gives his people under the old covenants, and we could say, you know what? God was probably protecting them there, too, because you didn't need to slaughter an animal and eat all of its fat in one day. That probably wasn't a healthy and a good thing. And, of course, God is, is sovereign, and God is prevenient, and God knows all things. And so, you know, in his wisdom, that may have been part of God's plan. We see that some of the um, dietary laws that are commanded for God's people prevent them from eating things that would have been dangerous in their context under their circumstances because of sanitation issues or those kinds of things, potential for contamination. And so 
I think, you know, there's multiple layers here of God's grace. And part of that may be that, you know, God did in a way protect their health by not having them slaughter a goat and then sit down and eat all of the fat or goats are not as fatty, but sheep or a bull or whatever. Um, so the fat was prohibited. The blood was prohibited. Um, we don't really honestly have anything that tells us specifically why this offering is commanded. It seems to be a more of a general purpose kind of offering, as I said. Um, the idea seems to be, though, behind that, that root word shalom that gives us the name of the offering, that it's for establishing or maintaining peace between the worshiper and God. There's probably also some emphasis there on mutual peace among God's people, but I think the primary emphasis seems to be um, creating peace before God. And we know that, um, apart from Christ, we have no peace with God. Um, sadly, it's often glossed over or misinterpreted or not much taught these days, but the fact is that Scripture is pretty plain, that the wrath of God remains against all who are not hidden in Christ. And so there is no peace with God apart from being hidden in Christ. There is no peace with God apart from having the perfect peace offering, the perfect sacrifice applied to us, to our account. There's no other way that we can ever be um, at rest with God, that we can ever be at peace with God, that God will ever be at peace with us. When some translations um, use the term fellowship offering, and that's kind of a majority of translations seem to, to point that way um, nowadays, that's also not inappropriate, though I don't think it's as faithful to the root word that gives us the term, but it does point in the direction of healthy relationships among the people who offer the sacrifice. It's based on the fact that this kind of particular offering was uh, also the occasion of family feasting, something that would have been a, a fairly rare thing that families got to enjoy together. And so that was probably part of uh, celebrating the Holy Day, and it was probably something that reinforced and built up families in the process. Um, The personal kinds of reasons we said might involve fulfilling a vow or um, thanksgiving for something the Lord's done. Worship reasons kind of include renewing a covenant or the appointing of a king sometimes would have been an occasion for a peace offering like this. Um, there's also a peace offering like this commanded at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings. And so it, it recurs and, and like I say, it's kind of a multi-purpose kind of thing. It's a little bit different than the specific burnt offering that kind of had one aim. Um, and in the last case, in the dedication of the temple, the number of animals that was used by Solomon wasn't a matter of impressing God, but about providing an abundance of free meat, really, probably for the people to celebrate the occasion, because it was meant to be a celebratory kind of thing. Um, this chapter, if you notice, kind of gets divided into um, some sections um, talking about the offering of cattle, sheep, goats, etc., the practical part of that ritual is about the same as it is for the burnt offering as far as the splattering of the blood on the side of the altar and the way that um, uh, the animals flayed and parts offered and everything. The main difference, I guess, um, was that first, female and male animals could be used for the peace offering. It was only male animals, remember, for the burnt offering. They had to be without defect still, but they were acceptable, male or female. And then, of course, only the fatty parts got burnt um, before the Lord. Um, for the worshiper, it would have been something that was very, um, socially inclusive. 
It would have been a reinforcement of being part of God's covenant communion, community because you are celebrating this together with God's people. Very much like Jesus' institution of communion um, under the new covenant. Um, the fact that it led to this kind of fellowship meal afterwards might be a reason why there's not any provision here for offering birds like you have in some other things. Because I mentioned that sometimes you would have people who were too poor to be able to bring a goat or a lamb or a bull or something to be able to offer. And so they would have to share in somebody else's food. And there's not a provision for bringing pigeons or doves like there is in many of the other offerings. Maybe part of that is because this was supposed to be a mutual kind of thing. This was supposed to be a social kind of thing. I think God loves a good potluck supper to his glory, you know? And the Israelites wouldn't have had or known of any kind of bird that was big enough to share around. They simply didn't have anything the size of a goose or a turkey or, you know, anything like that that they could be able to share around. Um, they were aware of the existence of ostriches, um, you know, in neighboring lands and stuff, but it certainly wasn't the sort of thing that, you know, uh, a person without a firearm could go out and take down very easily. It uh, would not have certainly been a dietary staple for them. And so, you know, pretty much we're limited to four-legged animals here. And maybe part of that is to ensure that they do have this kind of fellowship instead of taking, you know, a little duck or some kind of bird and just going off by yourself and eating that you do share with the community and you enforce that membership in the covenant through that. So, what we have summed up here is another aspect of worship, that is the aspect of fellowship and communion with God all at the same time. Um, and we know, as I said, from Jesus' example in the New Testament, how important that is. The difference is that when we come to um, celebrate the fellowship meal under the new covenant, the sacrifice that's been required has already been fully given, already been fully made in the person of Christ. And because Jesus has already provided the full and complete righteous sacrifice on our behalf by the grace of God, we no longer have to offer bulls and rams and goats before the Lord. So we are able to experience communion with God in a new way, in a way that does not involve any need to appease God at all. Because if we're in Christ, God is already fully satisfied with us. That's an important thing I want you to remember, and you probably know this. If you don't, I want you to hear it and hear it well. If you do, I want you to remind yourself of it. If you are in Christ, if by God's grace he has called you and made you his own and redeemed you with the shed blood of Jesus Christ, God can never be any more pleased with you than he is at this moment. He can never be any less pleased with you. God's opinion of you will never change, and he is fully pleased and fully satisfied because of what Jesus did, not because of any ability you have to be righteous, but because of what Christ did, applied to your account by God's grace out of love. And of course, the key to that is that we be in Christ. If you don't know him, come to Jesus. Find peace with God and man. Find fullness of joy, knowing that you're redeemed and you're approved. I don't know about you, but I think that a part of my life before I knew the Lord, an awful lot of it seemed to be devoted to trying to find approval from everyone, including myself. I just never seemed to measure up. I never seemed to be good enough. And when I look at myself now, I sure don't feel like I'm good enough. Right now, I feel kind of lame and gimpy and not very 
good for anything, to be honest, because I can't do much beyond sitting on the sofa and um, offering some verbal encouragement to my sweet family as they take care of things. But you know what? I'm whole in Christ. I am absolutely made by God's grace in Jesus Christ everything that he ever desired for me. And I'm fully approved. And I have full standing of righteousness before him. I have peace and I have redemption. And I'm approved because of Jesus. And that lets me rest from my efforts at self-righteousness. If you've had any experience with self-righteousness, that's awful. It really is. You know, the, the thing, the fallacy about self-righteousness, we would think that in our own fleshly, carnal kinds of efforts to be good people, that just by sheer dumb luck, somehow we would occasionally do something good. But the fact is, we really can't accomplish anything that's righteous apart from union with Christ. And when God has united us with Christ, he sanctifies and makes righteous our hearts and makes us desire to do those things that bless us and glorify him and bring other people into the fold. So I can rest from trying to be righteous apart from God, which is a fool's errand because I can never accomplish it anyway. And then one of the greatest things I inherit is the promise of eternal life with God. Not a floating around on a cloud, playing a harp, Bugs Bunny, Wally Coyote kind of heaven, but a fullness of life that goes far beyond anything that I've ever experienced here. A quality and a depth of life that goes beyond anything this world can offer me. Um, an awakening of my senses and an awareness of truth that I can't fully have in this world because sin dims my senses and dulls my ability to be able to perceive the truth of God. And one day, as scripture promises, I will stand before him and I will know him as he now knows me. I will see God in all of his glory. And unlike the prophets of the old covenants, I will not have to hide my face from his glory because I am even now made righteous in Christ to be able to stand before him. If the Lord calls me home today, I will be able to look up in his face and, and revel in his glory and not have to cast my eyes down out of fear of being incinerated because I'm a sinful man. I have right standing. I'm approved. I am made righteous. I have peace with God because Jesus is the peace offering. Jesus is everything that God has ever required of me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are wholly righteous, that you are wholly good, that you are so good that though your righteousness demands that no sin can ever be in your presence, you have seen our chosen state of rebellion against you. You've seen the damage that sin has done, how completely, utterly sin has ruined us and separated us from you without any hope. And you, out of mercy, have given us that hope 
you have given us righteous standing through Jesus Christ, who is the perfect peace offering, who forever fulfills the things that Leviticus 3 talks about here. He becomes the sweet savor, the righteous aroma before you that allows us to be approved. He becomes the sustenance for your people. And he becomes the occasion for our brotherhood and sisterhood in him by which we are united to all those whom you have given faith from Adam to now and from now until the day of your return, Lord, making us one brotherhood and sisterhood in Jesus Christ. God, my prayer is that everyone who hears my voice this morning will know that they're a part of that family of faith. And God, that if anyone doesn't, that they would reach out and cry out to you, Lord, that they would call upon you. And God, we know, we know your firm promise that no one who ever sincerely desired you did so apart from your grace already at work. And that you will never turn away anyone who sincerely desires you. God, my prayer is that perhaps right now or in the future, this broadcast gets viewed by someone somewhere that you would draw um, the hearts of people to you, that you would be lifted up and glorified. Father, that people would be saved and added to our brotherhood and sisterhood of faith. Lord, thank you for being so amazingly good that you not only are righteous enough to require a sacrifice, but you're gracious enough to have given the sacrifice, become the sacrifice yourself, become the sacrifice by which we are given peace with you. Lord, you're so gracious and so good, and we praise your name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. Um, if you can't tell, I get kind of passionate about these things. I really love um, the book of Leviticus because it does so much reveal to me um, who Jesus is, why Jesus came, and what benefits we have from Jesus' righteous sacrifice on our behalf. Our faith, our, our confession of faith today um, is one that really kind of lines up with this. It's from the Heidelberg Catechism. This is question nine. I'll read the question and the answer since it's just me here this morning in front of the computer. The question says this, but does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? In other words, is it not unjust for God to require perfect righteousness, knowing that man is ruined by sin and can't be righteous apart from that? And the answer to the question, no, for God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Thank God that wasn't the end of the story. But in Jesus Christ, God has provided the Redeemer the kinsman redeemer who has made us able to stand in righteousness for him, having all those requirements of the law fulfilled, not by my flesh, but by Jesus' great love. Thank you for listening this morning. I pray God's very best blessings for you and those you love today. God bless you. Go in his peace.